brood with the juniper shrews, you moody Houstons. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. If this is your first podcast, go back to an earlier episode. Some people even begin from the start to familiarise themselves with the lore of this podcast. The weather has been cunty. It has been sufficiently cunty. Freezing cold. Vigorous. Sideways rain. Aggressive wind. Very disagreeable weather. By far the most annoying weather. I can put up with cold weather. I can put up with the rain. I can put up with weather that's too hot. But the March weather, that actively fights me. I've been trying to cycle every fucking day or go for a run. And I've got wind and rain and cold blasting into the front of me. And actively making me not want to be outside. It's very difficult to dress for that weather. You can dress to keep warm. You can dress to keep dry. But wind, that's a different situation. So when I'm on my bicycle and I'm dressed extra toasty, I've got my double layers. I've got my big jacket on for the rain. My Gore-Tex trousers. They keep me dry and they keep me warm. But when the wind is involved, it turns me into a shit type of boat. My body becomes a sail. And I'm cycling against the wind. And I can't fucking move. And same when I'm running. But I am happy that the weather is like this. Because if you were listening to last week's podcast. Where I spoke about the myth of the brindle cow. A story that could be thousands of years old. About how shit the weather is in March. I'm glad that March is doing its thing. I'm glad that March has togged out, turned up and said, What's the crack? I'm March. Remember me? I'm a fucking bastard. I'm a bollocks. I'm the month that kills cattle. So with that in mind, I'm tolerating. I'm tolerating how terrible the month is. I'm putting up with it because I'm glad that at the very least it's predictable and climate change hasn't given us a strange march a bammy march like it's done to October and November and the other thing with March is it's St. Patrick's Day in two days and I don't I don't associate St. Patrick's Day with good weather it's such a fucking Irish thing to do let's have a parade let's pick one day a year to have a big giant parade up and down the country and everyone leaves their houses and stands around Let's have a parade on the day when we definitely know there's going to be very aggressive sideways rain. Let's build giant floats made out of paper mache and put them on the backs of trucks on the day when there will definitely be aggressive sideways rain. So St. Patrick's Day is in two days and the weather's going to be shit and everyone will be outside drinking pints of Guinness and there'll be rainwater in your Guinness. First time I got drunk on St. Patrick's Day, I would have been 16, maybe 17, and I would have gotten proper drunk, but we couldn't go into a pub because we were 16, so we had to drink in a field. So I would have gotten proper drunk in a field at about 2 o'clock in the day, while there was torrential rain, horrible sideways wind, and it was the first time I noticed when you get drunk you don't really care whether you're cold or wet. But this particular St. Patrick's Day, it was so wet and so windy that we just had to call it off. 
we were all drinking, me and my buddies, in a fucking field behind a petrol station. We were all drinking and it got to about four o'clock in the day and we all had to go, no more, no more. We're, we're in a hedge, soaking wet, no more. Now they were drunk, drunk enough to return to their houses because their parents were also drunk because it was St. Patrick's Day. So they were drunk enough to return home and not get into trouble. But I'd gotten too drunk. I was ridiculously drunk and covered head to toe in mud. So I definitely couldn't go home to my own house because my parents would have killed me. So what I had to do is I had to ask one of my friends. It's like, I can't stay here in this field on my own. Can I come back to your house? And he's like, no, you're too drunk and you're covered in mud. And I'm like, please, I've nowhere to go. I've nowhere to go. So the compromise was, I could come to his house, but I'd have to stay in the front porch with the door closed. So that's what I did. So I lay in his front porch, which was like a glass coffin, absolutely ossified, covered in mud, looking like an eel. And then his mother took pity on me and gave me a bowl of homemade Irish curry, which had raisins in it. And then I vomited over every single inch, every single centimetre and inch of their front porch. The ceiling and everything, the letterbox, the door, the floor. My friend's dad came out, went fucking mental, hunted me away. I kind of sobered up a bit after the vomiting. And then his dad, who was drunk, had to try and clean their front porch of my vomit with a watering can and that experience always kind of ruined St. Patrick's Day for me I find it difficult now I'm not even going to drink this St. Patrick's Day I'm just going to do something else I'm going to ignore St. Patrick's Day it'll just be another Thursday but I'd like to speak about St. Patrick this week because I've never done I've done St. Patrick's Day themed podcasts but I've never gone into the life of St. Patrick and the thing is with St. Patrick In Ireland, we learned about St. Patrick. Jesus, since we were toddlers in school, it formed part of our Christian education, our Catholic education. We'd collect shamrocks, or we'd make shamrocks out of paper in school, because shamrocks grow everywhere. You go to any patch of grass, and you'll find some shamrocks. And we were told, St. Patrick converted the Irish to Christianity. That we were once pagan and St. Patrick converted the Irish to Christianity and he did this using the shamrock. That the shamrock, because it had three leaves, was a nice visual metaphor for the crucifix. St. Patrick would meet a Gaelic chieftain or a druid or a peasant and he'd hold up a shamrock and say, this thing here with its three leaves is the same as the crucifix and there was a fella called Jesus and he was crucified on this crucifix and he did this because we're all born with original sin long ago there was a garden with a man and a woman in it and then a snake came along and told the woman to eat an apple and she did and then we were all born with sin and this fella died on this crucifix for the sin that you were born with 
to save us. And the Gaelic chieftains would go, wow, that's fucking interesting. And then St. Patrick would go, that's not all. This fella, this fella who was crucified on this shamrock, he was his own son and his own dad. And he'd use the shamrock to go, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. All of these things is God. And this method of visual communication, using the simple shamrock, was so convincing that any pagan Irish people who heard it were like, this is class, I like this story, I'm invested, convert me. There's probably quite a lot of truth in that. St. Patrick probably did use shamrocks to explain Christianity. The thing is, and this is what we weren't told in school, what made St. Patrick successful and a lot of the early Christian missionaries in Ireland, they would incorporate Christian beliefs into pre-existing beliefs that the Gaelic people of Ireland already had. The shamrock had already been quite an important symbol in the pagan beliefs of Irish people. Now Patrick came to Ireland because he was a real person. So Patrick came to Ireland, they say probably around the year 430s, sometime in the 430s. So that's 1500 years ago when Patrick came to Ireland. But if you go to Newgrange, which is an ancient passage tomb in Meath in Ireland. Now Newgrange is 5000 years old. Newgrange is older than the pyramids of Egypt. It's a large structure. It's so old. We don't really know what it was for, but what we do fucking know is that 5,000 years ago, this structure was built in such a way that on the shortest day of the year, the sun shines down a shaft in the roof of Newgrange perfectly and illuminates a central chamber. So 5,000 years ago, our ancestors had pretty decent knowledge of astronomy. Newgrange is one of the most important historical sites in the world not just Ireland in the world but what always fascinated me about Newgrange was the artwork the stones of Newgrange these huge stones where Irish artists 5,000 years ago had gotten a chisel or a stone tool or whatever and made the earliest examples of abstract art all over the stones of Newgrange are these designs spirals and lozenges they don't seem to represent any physical reality they're an abstraction completely removed from reality 5,000 years ago is a long time that's before the fucking bible that's before Moses so it qualifies as primitive art now I wouldn't put them in the same category as cave paintings because cave paintings geez there's cave paintings that could be 40,000, 50,000 years old but it's still primitive art. And with a lot of primitive art, such as cave paintings, the artist is trying to portray something in their lived environment. They're trying their best to draw a bison or a horse or whatever animals they see. But in Newgrange 5,000 years ago, they weren't interested in the real world. They were making abstract art. The thing with abstract art as opposed to representational art. So representational art is when you draw or paint something that you can see, 
something that exists here and now, like an animal or a tree. But with abstract art, you're documenting your imagination. When you paint a piece of abstract art that's abstracted, you're trying to paint or draw an emotion, a feeling. You're painting something or drawing something that's within the spiritual realm. So the 5,000-year-old abstract art in Newgrange is most likely spiritual and it might have had a religious connotation or a religious connection. Now, as I mentioned earlier, because Newgrange is built in such a way that when the sun shines on the earliest day of the year, these people 5,000 years ago had knowledge of astronomy. They cared about the sky, they cared about the stars. And right beside Newgrange is the River Boyne. And the River Boyne was named after the Boand, which is the cow goddess. The area of the Boyne River near Newgrange is known as the bend of the river of the white cow goddess. The track of the white cow. And then you look up into the sky and what do you have? The Milky Way. 5,000 years ago in Mead. You look up to the sky and there's no light pollution and you have a clear night and you see this band of white stars trailing across the sky right above the river Boyne and your entire economy and world is cattle and you look up and you go that's the Milky Way that's the milk in the sky and this river is the milk in the land but of the the many examples of abstract art that are present in Newgrange carved into the stones on the front of Newgrange the one that stands out the most and that's the most visually arresting is known as the, the Triskelion and there's Triskelions 5,000 years old carved into the stones of Newgrange as abstract art now how do I describe the Triskelion to you I'm going to describe it to you in this way and this is a plausible theory by which I mean this is something that serious academics have considered, but it's 5,000 years ago, so you're only guessing. So the shape of the Triskelion, it's three spiral circles. It's a fucking shamrock, okay? You look at Newgrange and look at the stones and find the Triskelion, it's a shamrock, okay? But it's not just any shamrock. If you've ever taken psychedelics, even if you've taken a lot of cannabis, but mostly psychedelics, in particular magic mushrooms. When you take enough magic mushrooms, the world around you dissolves into abstract shapes and patterns. And if you were to take a load of magic mushrooms 5,000 years ago at Newgrange and stare at a shamrock, what would happen is that spirals would emerge in the centre of that shamrock and it would melt away with the reality around it. So what I'm getting at is there's 5,000 year old drawings of shamrocks carved into the stones of Newgrange that are a bit like a fucking shamrock if you're off your tits on magic mushrooms staring at a shamrock. Now this is all speculation because it's 5,000 years ago like I said. But one theory is that, so Newgrange was beside the River Boyne. We know that they 
got the name of the River Boyne because it was the way of the Milky Cow and the Milky Way was above. Cattle were a huge part of the economy, very important to the people of Ireland. There's one theory that people would bring their cattle to the area around Newgrange, to the area around the River Boyne for religious purposes to keep the cattle safe, to keep them healthy, to hope that the cattle will give you a lot of milk and then having all these cattle around Newgrange the cattle start doing their shits and their pisses this creates incredibly fertile ground for liberty cat mushrooms to grow which are the mushrooms that grow around Newgrange and the soil is pure fertile so one plausible theory is that think of it this way it's a field in mead if you close your eyes while you're sitting down and reach out with both of your hands and in both hands you pick two clumps of grass what's going to be in either hand loads of shamrocks and liberty cat mushrooms and then you eat the liberty cat mushrooms because of course people were doing that of course they were then you start experiencing the psychedelic effects you stare at a shamrock you'll start to see that fractal geometry that we associate with psychedelic experiences that shamrock will start to swirl and patterns will emerge and then lo and behold all over Newgrange are these stones with 5,000 year old art with these patterns called Triskelions which look like a shamrock when you're on magic mushrooms so that's a theory we don't know if it's true but it's something that's plausibly considered one thing we do know is that this design of the Triskelion that's present on the 5,000 year old stone of Newgrange which if you, you know it if you see it because this has been replicated in you get Celtic jewellery today and you'll see the Triskelion design if you look at it you'll go oh fuck me that's a shamrock that is a shamrock there's just instead of it being a leaf it's all these spirals the Triskelion remained as an important symbol in Irish pagan beliefs and what it meant to the Irish pagans was it was the cyclical nature of time. It meant life, death and rebirth. And then it also meant the underworld, the earth and the sky and how all these things are unified together in Irish mythology. Because remember, within Irish mythology, linear time wasn't really a thing. I've done podcasts on linear time and the history of linear time. Linear time is eschatological in nature. It's rooted in Abrahamic religions. It's There's a God and God made the world. He started it. And then one day that the world will end. Start and a finish. That's linear time. And it's something we associate with the Abrahamic religions. Judaism, Christianity, uh, Islam. Ireland didn't have that until St. Patrick. What you had was the other world which was this separate realm like a parallel universe where the Tuatha Dé Danann lived or where the fairies lived then you have the physical reality here that we live that you can touch and then you have the skies up above where the Milky Way is so we held on to this Triskelion shape as an important symbol that we understood so when St. Patrick came along in the 5th century he didn't just pick up a shamrock and have the bright idea of 
how are you getting on, lads? This shamrock looks a bit like a crucifix, doesn't it? It was much more likely that the shamrock meant something already and that it could be 5,000 years old. And via the Triskelion, the shamrock was already a tripartite model that would explain the world, you know? And Patrick came along and said, okay, you've got... Okay, this means the other world, and it means the earth here, and it means the sky. Well, how about this? It means the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And together we call that God. And God is a bit like reality. And the Holy Spirit is a bit like the other world. Because that's the bit, that's the scary bit, the ghost bit. But then there's Christ himself, who is a real person. That's the earth. And then we've heaven as well. That's the bit up there. And here's the thing. Most likely, like the reason Christianity spread is because it's just a fucking brilliant story. It's a real interesting story. Monotheism is an interesting story and it's a simple story. And it's a lot simpler than having all these different deities and gods and the complexity of that world. It's a lot, it's a much better story to say there's one God and his son died for your sins. Don't be worrying about crops. Don't be worrying about cows. Don't be worrying about fairies, any of that shit. Just live a decent life in accordance with the Ten Commandments. And then don't sin, and then you get to live in heaven. The best stories win. Which is why... That's why I'm, I'm taking the story about the shamrock and the magic mushrooms and Newgrange with a grain of salt. It is a theory that academics consider. But fuck me, do I want to believe that. That's such a beautiful story. I want to look at the shamrock on St. Patrick's Day. I want to look at that shamrock and I want to say to myself, I can trace this back 5,000 years to, to cow shit and magic mushrooms and Newgrange. That's such an interesting story and I want it to be true. So for that reason, I'm cautious of it. Because history tends not to follow such beautiful narratives because reality is chaos and the human mind interacts with that chaos to find meaning and patterns that we form into stories and here's the other thing with the human brain and patterns we love threes we love things that happen in threes it's just wonderfully symmetrical and balanced and that Triskelion that I mentioned there that's 5,000 years old this is present across all cultures you also have the swastika. Now forget about the Nazis. They fucked the swastika up for everybody. Swastika is present in Eastern traditions going back five, six thousand years too. It's just a visual shape that's tripartite. It has three elements that mean something. Also storytelling. Human stories, regardless of culture, tend to follow a comfortable three-act structure. Set up conflict resolution the human animal likes to organize the world in threes in hinduism there's three major gods brahma vishnu and shiva even pythagoras pythagoras said the number three is the perfect number it's the number of harmony wisdom and understanding the three little pigs goldilocks and the three bears the three musketeers three wise men even when you're counting one Two? Oh, three? What's going on with you, man? Because two is made up of a couple of ones, but 
Three? You're odd, are you? You're an odd number. I like you. Three's funny in that way. It unsettles us. It makes us pang for four. Because you can make sense of four. Because then you have the other thing within Irish mythology, which is the significance of the four-leaf clover, which is just a shamrock with an extra leaf. It was a symbol of good luck. It's like you'd found the answer. But we don't hear much of the four-leaf clover in Ireland. That's much more of a... That's an American thing. Like, even though it is rooted in Irish mythology, we don't call it a clover. And when I... Like, I learned about the four-leaf clover not from Ireland and the people around me. I learned about the four-leaf clover from American television. To me, the four-leaf clover is an American belief or an Irish-American belief. And it makes sense because it fits quite nicely in with the American dream and frontierism. Same with the leprechaun and the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. These things to me, I understand these things to be culturally American. A version of Irishness that was sold to me by America. Like pumpkins for jack-o'-lanterns. But the four-leaf clover is... That's the American dream. It's frontierism. It's the idea that there's a whole field of shamrocks out there. And it's your job to work hard and search through these shamrocks. And eventually you'll find the four-leaf shamrock. And then all the riches of the world will reveal themselves. That's quite um, an American myth. But on the subject of America, another thing that's going to happen on the 17th on St. Patrick's Day and this is a weird little pagan tradition. To me, it's the most pagan shit that Ireland does. The Taoiseach, who's the Prime Minister of Ireland, on St. Patrick's Day, is going to fly to the White House and present the President of America, Joe Biden, with a ball of shamrocks. And this happens every fucking year. Every year since the 1950s, the Prime Minister of Ireland flies to the White House and gives a ball of shamrocks to the American president. Now it's supposed to symbolise the Irish diaspora in America, years of Irish emigration to America. What it really is now today is it's it's our it's Ireland's little bit of soft power. We're a tiny nation, and really what it means now is it's the Taoiseach Leo Radcar is going to bring a silly little ball of shamrocks, give it to Joe Biden. And what it means is we are Ireland and we are okay with American capitalism. We're part of this game. American corporations can come to Ireland and pay no tax. We have a solid relationship here. We're just a small little country, but this is the relationship. It's a pat on the head from the Yanks. That's what the ball of shamrocks is. Now what I'd say to Leo Radker, because I know that you listen to this podcast, Leo, I know you listen to this podcast. The reason I know is because you follow me on Twitter and then I press the button where you unfollow and you follow back. So I know that you're listening right now. Go over to Joe Biden on the 17th on Thursday, right? And he's the most fucking Irish American president since Kennedy. So Joe Biden knows. He knows about Newgrange. He's probably been there. Don't talk to Joe Biden about Facebook. Don't talk to him about Uber. Don't mention the tax rate. Go to Joe Biden. And when you hand him the shamrocks, tell him the story. A 
about the magic mushrooms and the cow shit and no Grinch and tell him we'll build him a petrol station like we did for Barack Obama which is the only petrol station in the country where you can get a chicken fillet roll that has Supermax cheese which is the most culty fact that I know but it is a fact if you get a chicken fillet roll at Barack Obama Plaza they use the cheese that you get in Supermax on the rolls but tell Joe Biden we'll build him a petrol station and we'll sell magic mushrooms at it right it's time for the ocarina pause now after the ocarina pause I want to speak about the historical life of St. Patrick I don't have the ocarina but I do have um, a box of chewing gums so let's shake the box of chewing gums and you're going to hear an advert for something Quite friendly to the ears of dogs. That was the chewing gum pause. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. This podcast is my full time job. This is what I do for a living. This is how I earn a living. If this podcast wasn't how I earn a living, I wouldn't be able to make the podcast each week because it takes time to research and write this podcast. I adore this work. I love this work. But if you enjoy this work, please consider paying me for it. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. If you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. Because the person who is paying is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast and I get to earn a living. Also, it means I'm not beholden to any advertisers. Advertisers are what destroy television and what destroy radio. If you look at TV and radio and you go, why is this so shit? It's because of advertisers. Once an advertiser controls the parse strings of any type of entertainment, it stops being about the best version of that entertainment and it becomes about how do you get the most amount of listeners. And once your focus becomes how can I get as many people listening as possible, then creativity goes out the window. You go for the lowest common denominator. You're reactionary. You're loud. You're bright. You're too colourful. I don't want to do that. I don't even want to fucking think about listeners. I want to make what I care about, what I'm passionate about. I want to be the best version of myself to deliver the best podcast that I can deliver. And when the podcast is funded by the listeners, that's possible. That's what can be done. And if an advertiser does come in, it's completely on my terms. 
So just a couple of gigs. Next week, I am in Vicker Street. I cannot wait to come to Vicker Street. I have two dates next week. The 22nd and 24th. 24th, the Friday, that's completely sold out. The 22nd, the Wednesday, there's about 20 tickets left to Vicker Street in Dublin on the 22nd next week. It's a Wednesday night. Nice and relaxed. An evening, a conversation. You don't have to drink. Come to the podcast, chill out like you're at the cinema or the theatre and you're back home in bed, ready for work the next day. So we're down to the last few tickets for Vicker Street next Wednesday and Friday sold out. Then Drada on the 1st of April, right? Come along to Drada. We're doing all right in Drada. We're doing all right in Drada. I'm looking forward to that gig. That's going to be fantastic crack. And he gave me lovely suggestions for guests as well. So thank you for that. And then I'm over in Canada. I think they're sold out. Vancouver is sold out. Toronto Opera House on the 26th of April has got 25 tickets left. So come along to that. And then I'm not doing shit till July, I think, because I'm fucking writing a book, lads. So back to St. Patrick. What makes St. Patrick quite unique is that not only do we know that he was a real person who existed, but like for someone from the 5th century, St. Patrick actually left writings. He left his biography. He left a document that was written in Latin called the Confessions of St. Patrick, which he wrote near the end of his life. And it's him basically describing his life story. And we know that it was written by him, so it's a historical document about a real human being. And that's quite unique and strange and rare for that time. And then there's the other St. Patrick, which is the St. Patrick that would have been written about maybe 200 years after his death. And that's the more mythical St. Patrick that you associate with the cult of St. Patrick. The St. Patrick that performed miracles. So that's a separate St. Patrick. But I'm going to speak about the real, actual St. Patrick based only on the words that he himself left behind. So St. Patrick was born in Britain around the year 385. Now he was born into Roman Britain just at the collapse of the Roman Empire, which was a slow, gradual process. And Patrick was born into kind of an upper-middle-class family in Roman Britain. He'd have been born into a nice house. His dad was a tax collector, I believe, but also a deacon in the church. His grandfather was a priest. He came from a religious family in Roman Britain in relative comfort quite a high standard of living for the time in Roman society. Thing was, when Rome was collapsing, it was slow and gradual, as I said. So, in St. Patrick's world, all of a sudden, the soldiers that like used to defend his town in Britain, and we don't know where it was, somewhere northern, close to the west coast of Britain, Normally there'd be soldiers like protecting where the town that St. Patrick was from. But because the Roman Empire was collapsing, the soldiers would like disappear or they wouldn't get paid. And all of a sudden, this comfortable life, it would start to crack a little bit. And the town would be unprotected. 
and then raiders from Ireland, because Ireland wasn't influenced by Rome at all. We were Hibernia, the land of eternal winter. The Romans didn't come near us. Ireland was a pagan society. Patrick would have considered Ireland to be savage. It didn't have the structure or democracy of a Roman society. Ireland was a collection of petty kingdoms constantly fighting with each other. So Irish raiders used to pillage fucking Roman Britain because it was collapsing and the soldiers weren't around to defend it. So the Irish would go in and go, we're taking a bunch of shit. So when Patrick was 16, he was kidnapped by Irish pirates and brought to Ireland to live as a slave. Now Patrick mentions the area where he was taken in Ireland and it doesn't exist anymore. It was an ancient forest called Fochlut, which would have been an ancient Irish rainforest that doesn't exist anymore because it's been felled for pasture land. But they reckon that Fochlut was somewhere between the, the border of Sligo and Mayo. So that's the northwest of Ireland. But the thing with Patrick, as a child of, of relative privilege and money, he's like he was kidnapped at 16, but the first 16 years of his life, he rebelled against the Christian life that his father would have wanted him to have. His dad was a deacon. His grandfather was a priest. And Patrick spent his teenage years going, I'm not that interested in God. Don't really give too much of a fuck about God. Doing that teenage thing whereby in order to find his identity, he's going to rebel against everything his father wants him to do. And then suddenly he's fucking kidnapped. One day he's gone. And now he finds himself in the savage wildlands of Sligo not able to speak the language in a culture that is pagan it doesn't know Christianity and he's a slave and he has to mind sheep and he has to mind pigs and he's living a horrendous life this is someone who grew up well this is someone who considered themselves civilised and now he's taken away from his family in the middle of a fucking mad Irish rainforest as a shepherd Naked, he said himself, in the freezing cold and rain, completely naked. Living a life of absolute and utter physical suffering. And when Patrick was in Ireland as a slave, his Christianity returned to him. He didn't have family, he didn't speak the language, but what he did have was he started to pray to God and pray to Jesus Christ. And all this Christianity that he rejected as a teenager... That was all he had now. And it reminds me a bit of the story of Viktor Frankl when he spent his time in the Nazi concentration camp, which is told in a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And Frankl says, a person can put up with any how so long as they have a why. That if a person is suffering and in a terrible situation and they're being tortured and nothing about their lived reality is in any way pleasant. That so long as a person can hold on to some sense of meaning, then they can survive. And Patrick's account of his time in Ireland reminds me of that. He's not having a good time as a slave. He's treated like fucking shit. No one gives a shit about his life. He's not even given clothes. But he finds meaning and purpose in prayer and meditation even when he's starving 
he meditates and prays all day long and finds communion with Christ once again and finds his Christianity. And then after six years of being a slave in Ireland, he has a dream, he has a vision. And the vision says, you've got to leave. There's a ship and you've got to just walk away from this farm that you're on. You've got to escape. Go to this ship and this ship is going to take you home. It's going to take you back to England. So he did and he got on a ship. Now the captain of the ship didn't want to take him. He's like, who the fuck are you? You're an escaped slave. Why would I possibly take you? But Patrick managed to convince him. So they sailed off on the ship and the lads who he was on the ship with were, they were hard cunts. They were pirates. They were bandits. And they didn't have a lot of respect for Patrick, who's this meek young fella who was living as a slave. And they were being assholes to him. And then, finally, the ship stops somewhere. They don't know, was it Europe or was it Britain? But every person on the ship is now fucking starving. And they've just found themselves on land. And they don't know where they are. And these are all Irish pagans on the ship with him. And then when they're starving, Patrick claims that he prayed to God to get them food and as soon as he prayed all of a sudden they found a herd of wild pigs and then they killed the pigs and they had food and as soon as he did this all the Irish pagans on the ship were like I don't know who this fella is I don't know who this god is who he's talking about but he just did a prayer and now we have food we're gonna help him so the crew helped him find his way back to his family in Britain So Patrick's about 24 at this stage. He's reunited with his family. And he realises, after all that time as a slave in Ireland, he goes to his dad and he's like, I want to follow in your footsteps. I found God. I found Christ again while I was over there. And this is what I want to do with my life. I want to pursue the vocation of being a religious person. So he's back to his life of comfort and money. And his dad goes, excellent, fantastic, all right, you're 24. Here's a lot of money. Head off to France there and spend time at an abbey in France and train and learn and become a priest. So that's what Patrick did. He went down to France and trained to become a priest. So he trains there until he's in his late 20s. And he's nice and comfortable being a priest in France. But then visions come to him in his sleep. And the visions that come to him are visions of Ireland. And he's thinking to himself, why, why am I thinking about that place where I was a slave? Why am I thinking about those horrible six years of my life? What's going on? But the visions come to him and they say, you have to go back to Ireland. And he heard the voices of the pagan Irish people from this rainforest in Sligo. He heard their voices calling out to him saying, come to us and teach us about Christ. So Patrick's like 29 and he goes, I'm going back to Ireland. I'm going to go back to Ireland and I'm going to teach them about Christianity. Now there had been small pockets of Christians in Ireland at that time. And there had been missionaries to Ireland before. There was a fellow called Palladius that was sent by the Pope, but he wasn't very successful. And also, when Palladius was sent to Ireland, he wasn't sent to Ireland to convert anybody. He was sent to Ireland by the Pope to look after the small community of Christians that were already there. Actively converting pagans at that time would have been seen as troublemaking. So Patrick's decision 
to leave this abbey in France and travel by himself to Ireland to convert a pagan people. That was quite a radical act that he was doing. It was a personal journey. It wasn't sanctioned by the Pope. So he went to Ireland. He landed in Wicklow. They didn't like him in Wicklow. He managed to make his way up north. And he was pretty good at speaking to people. He was pretty good at approaching chieftains and kings speaking to them about Christ baptising them and converting them and he would gain followers and some of these followers were like the sons of local Irish kings who understood the culture of Irish people and understood the language so he began the process of converting the pagan Irish people to Christianity but in a soft way in a way that incorporated and allowed the beliefs and mythology that Irish people already had that the, the customs and ideals that Irish people had that they held dear Patrick came in and said well there's this other thing called Christianity but you know we I bet you we can figure out a way to make both things work I'm going to baptize you you're going to become a child of Christ you become a Christian you can't sin but I reckon we can we can figure out a way to work all these traditions and practices and festivals that you have. We'll figure something out and it's going to be okay. And people were quite receptive to this. But the thing is with Patrick's confessions, which is where I'm getting this information from, he wrote this at the end of his life. And he wrote it as somebody who, who he considered himself to be a deeply flawed individual. He insinuates that other Christians were quite critical of him and he was accused of some shit but he doesn't say what it was and what he does mention is that he returned gifts that were given to him by wealthy women he had to defend the fact that he wasn't accepting payment for baptisms that he wasn't accepting money from kings so either Patrick did a bunch of bad shit where he was getting financial gain or he had a lot of begrudgers he had a lot of Christian begrudgers who were going, look at that fucking prick Patrick. Look at him, off over to Ireland, no one told him to do it, and now he's over there like a king. Like a king over in Ireland and everyone loves him. So it could have been jealousy as well. One thing that's clear from Patrick's confession is that he genuinely comes across as a decent human being because of how much importance and emphasis he places on humility. He doesn't talk himself up. He doesn't consider himself to be better than anybody. Ultimately, he understands I'm nothing because the only important thing is God. He has a much higher and deeper meaning and understanding of what it is to be alive. And this is someone who has achieved quite quite a lot. He went to Ireland and really fucking converted a lot of people. He, he, he did what he set out to do by the end of his life but he doesn't write about himself in a way that he's grandiose. There's quite a lot of humility there for someone who had achieved quite a bit. So he really did set off the sparks that changed Ireland from a pagan culture to a Christian culture. And a huge benefit of that is that's what ushered in a golden age in Irish culture. That's when you started to have monasteries founded started to have people training in Latin and writing that's where you see the explosion of Irish illuminated manuscripts 
that that's where you get early Irish Christianity where you have these huge centres of learning and art and study. It's where you get the land of saints and scholars where we have these wonderful, beautiful books being written that contain a, an amalgamation of both Christianity and Irish oral mythology that's thousands of years old and mixing those two things together to create something new, a radical art form which was respected in the known world when most of Europe was experiencing the collapse of the Roman Empire. And while the Roman Empire was collapsing in Britain and the Anglo-Saxons were coming in over the next 500 years and you had the Vikings as well, it was Irish monks who would go to Britain and found monasteries and found them as, as centres of learning. And the Irish gave Britain back quite a lot of writing and Latin and knowledge that was being lost during the collapse of the Roman Empire. So that's the historical account of Patrick, who was born Patricius, I think. That's the historical account of him in his own words. And then you have the other Patrick, which would have been written 200 years after his death by the cult of St. Patrick. These were the myths and legends that were written about St. Patrick to venerate him to the position of saint. And a lot of miracles would have been attributed to St. Patrick. And some of these behaviours would have been found in previous Irish mythology. So this is where you get like... So there was one book written called The Tripartite Life of St. Patrick, which I think was written 200 years after Patrick's death in the 700s, I believe. And this is where you get the story of him using the shamrock to convert the high kings of Ireland. And what you get is a mythology emerging around St. Patrick that he is a performer of miracles and that this would spread all around the place that this St. Patrick was a magical being more associated with like a type of pagan magic but with the voice of Christianity so he went to Cashel and there was a blind man and Patrick gave him back his sight which is taken straight from the Bible there's another story where Patrick is crossing Ireland with his followers and he meets the river Shannon and what he does with the River Shannon and the thing is you have to understand the importance of the River Shannon to the pagan Irish the River Shannon which comes from the goddess Shunnock this is the water that flows from the other world that flows it's magical water that comes from another dimension so Patrick goes to the River Shannon and it won't let him pass so he gets his staff and he shoves it into the ground and the River Shannon parts in front of him which is, that's Moses, that's straight out of the Bible. But the message that that sends to the Irish people is this River Shannon that you think comes from the other world that has all the knowledge of the parallel universe, that's fucking bullshit because Patrick parted it because he believes in Christ and God and this is more important than that pagan shit that you believe in. Again, that's from a hagiography written 200 years after his life. And then you have in the Book of Armagh which is another book that said that Patrick was able to raise the dead. There was a man who drowned in a river and Patrick came along and said a prayer and the man was brought back to life. He performed a miracle. There's stories of Patrick turning water into wine. He turned up at a wedding and turned water into wine. If you're reading this in the fucking 7th century in Ireland, you're, you've never, you, you're not familiar with this one from the Bible. You've probably never read the Bible. So a lot of these stories would come straight from the Bible and then the person writing about Patrick 200 years later is just going, 
Let's give him a bunch of Jesus shit. It worked for Jesus. Let's give it to this Patrick fella. But then there's other stories about Patrick that are just straight from Irish mythology. Such as Patrick defeating the Druids because Patrick could transform into a deer at any point. Now you won't find that one in the Bible. Now why were they doing this 200 years after Patrick's death? What was the... Why would you have these books like the Tripartite Life of St. Patrick or the Book of Armagh that's describing Patrick as this this important miracle performing person? First off, it makes him a saint because he can perform miracles. And also, the church in Ireland was getting powerful. And having St. Patrick as this powerful saint helped different kingdoms that would have been fighting to unify under the church. But also what it did is the legend of St. Patrick. It would travel outside of Ireland. Ireland 200 years after St. Patrick in the 700s. The legend of Ireland was travelling. We were the land of saints and scholars. Wealthy people from other parts of Europe would travel to Ireland to study. Monks and missionaries from Ireland would travel around Europe and found monasteries. Having this legendary figure like Patrick, who was almost to the level of an apostle, was very important for the brand of Ireland internationally at the time. A bit like what it does right now. That's why Leo Radiker has gone over to Biden with a, a fucking ball of shamrocks. It's about the brand of Ireland and soft power internationally. And this lasted a long time. Like I've done a separate podcast, probably this time last year, about St. Patrick's Hall. It's a pilgrimage site in County Donegal. Where it's said that in, in this hall, St. Patrick's Hall, is a gate to purgatory. And by the 1100s, Christians, really, really wealthy Christians all around Europe would travel to fucking Donegal to climb into St. Patrick's Hall and put themselves through a terrifying night where they thought they saw visions of purgatory. But really, yeah, if you boil St. Patrick down, we'll say after his death, there's the real person who existed who I spoke about. But after that, 200 years after, when it becomes myth and legend, not a lot has changed. Tourism, money and the economy. That's what Patrick is. That's what that's what the legend of Patrick is about. All right, dog bless. That's enough for this week. I'll catch you next week. I don't know what I'll catch you with. Weather's still going to be shit. If we're going to listen to that tale of the brindle cow, the weather won't start improving until the first 10 days of April so wrap yourself up warm wear some Gore-Tex get ready for some sideways rain and try and find beauty in the bleakness Hi, I'm Daniel founder of Pretty Litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 